The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability, the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. Brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello, welcome to another edition of the Bike Radar podcast. My name is Simon Bromley. I'm a senior technical writer for BikeRadar.com. And today I'm joined by James Witz, former editor of 220 Triathlon and now a freelance cycling and sports writer, and Stan Porters, BikeRadar.com digital writer. And we're going to be discussing James's article on the five frontiers of science that could make you faster in 2022. Now, this is an article that James wrote coming out of the Science and Cycling Annual Conference that brings together cycling's finest coaches, exercise physiologists, and academics to reveal what's happening at the tip of the peloton whilst flagging up what lies ahead down the road. So lots of interesting stuff going on here, but let's just say hi, James. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm well, Simon. Thanks for the um, for the introduction. That was, uh, let's hope the podcast can match the content you've just delivered. <laughs> how are you, Stan? Very good, thanks. Looking forward to diving into this subject. Great. So, as the kind of article says, this is, this is the Science and Cycling Conference is generally held for two days in the week prior to the Tour de France. Uh, obviously, this year slightly different because of COVID, but um, lots of really good stuff. So, let's just dive right into it. And I think the first uh, the first topic that you wrote about James was learning from the track as in track riding. And so obviously, you know, we just had an Olympic year, so we, I'm sure lots of people have watched track riding, but what were the kind of, what are the things that, you know, people on the road and people in other areas of cycling should be learning from track cycling? Well, many things and specifically from the conference, there was a particularly interesting presentation by a chap called Kurt Bergen-Taylor. Now Kurt, as many Many top sportsmen, sport staff sportsmen have come through the Loughborough University ranks. You are finding more and more university graduates entering the world of professional cycling. I mean, marginal gains, Team Sky, obviously, that was the the sort of flag bearers for this side of cycling. But it was still really the tip of the iceberg. Now every team I think you're finding in the World Tours will have, you know, ladies and gentlemen who have gone through 
gone through that pathway. Now, Kurt is a particularly sort of interesting character. He's currently with Team DSM, but previously he worked with Track Canada. And this is what his presentation was about, that he noticed where their track riders, they were generally very powerful units, but they were just missing out uh on medals on top placings because of their standing starts so really he you know has all these good scientists do sort of reverse engineered it broke it down and thought okay we look at this how can we how can we improve the standing start what aspect of performance are we going to look at so they really isolated the importance of torque which is really that that initial force on the pedal i think most road cyclists probably used to power output, obviously heart rate, et cetera. Power output really is torque, sort of multiplied by cadence to, to a degree. Uh, so they analysed the, well, really, yeah, the, that initial pedal stroke from the cyclist. Now, he said it was it was very hard to do, actually, on the track, but they, as, they, as is their want in this world, they loaded them up with sensors, but they also had a very high-tech jig, and they did notice that just their, their initial force the torque just wasn't high enough. Um, and from there, really, he went about setting out some some solutions. And it's tricky, isn't it, I suppose, with torque on the track? Because, you know, as, as you said, torque is, um, or power is torque times cadence. And so one way of increasing torque would be to increase the crank arm length. But obviously, when you're, when you're riding pursuit, you're going to have a very aggressive aero position. And so that's not kind of conducive to that. So you don't really want to do that. And obviously... But you can't just sort of multiply the cadence either because, you know, you're going off the line in a really big gear. So it's a it's a kind of tricky one, isn't it, to get that balance right? But I think your article suggested that, as you sort of said, they reverse engineered it and then did some sort of uh, very specific training using, uh, I think it's a Tax Neo 2T smart trainer. Is that right? And so what, what kind of things were they doing then to increase their torque and help them get off the line a bit quicker? Well, I mean, what Kurt sort of deduced he played around with this app i must admit i don't know if either of you chaps have used it i haven't actually used that i, I tend to use what bike quite a bit um i'm not being sponsored and that is not like <laughs> but other smart bikes are available <laughs> <laughs> exactly um he played around with this app and i think it was the iso kinetic mode where um the, the speed was sort of fixed so i think the force you could was try, I guess you're trying to take cadence almost out of the equation because you want that initial hit. Um, so he played around with this app and traditionally he was doing a lot of strength and training work just to increase that maximum contraction of the muscle. So he replaced that for 12 um, with several weeks with these three seconds of four second maximal effort work. And he did that as 12 repetitions at a time two minutes rest between sets. And as Kurt said, it was a, a disgusting session. <laughs> and it paid off because he said 66% of the participants racked up three kilometer individual personal bests. So it's that, you know, the, there was pain there, but ultimately they got the, the pleasure. And he mentioned that Kelsey Mitchell, who, yeah, she's um, a, a bit of a, a sort of track genius, really. She's only been around the velodrome for three, three years. Not constantly, obviously that would be crazy. But she's um, she's already won sprint gold at the the Olympics with this this work. It's very specific with attacks app, just increasing that that sort of torque generation. So it was interesting how he took it from the sh- the gym, the strength work. I think a lot of squats or cyclists, if you do the gym work, squats are obviously fundamental. It tends to be the weight and the the speed of contraction. 
which will dictate the performance parameter you're growing. But yeah, it was a lot of work on the, the tax and um, it, it seemingly paid off. And how can, you know, if we're, if we're talking about kind of road riders, then how, how, then how can we translate that sort of thing, you know, into a road? And, and you, in your article, you mentioned in sort of a lot of sprinters assume that they kind of hit their maximum power at a really, really high cadence or something. But, you know, it, when you delve into the data, maybe that's not actually true. And so, it's, it, you know, is it is it in terms of just, you know, making sure you're getting your gear selection right? You know, kind of like if you have a power meter that, you know, can show you torque data in whatever software you're using, then is it worth looking at that relationship between sort of torque and cadence and, and then using that to improve your sprint? The short answer, yes, very, very well. Very well <laughs> I think it is one of those, you know, things Kurt is obviously a top sports scientist. He's dealing with the elite athletes. They have a team around them who can analyze all this. Obviously, us recreational riders are sort of balancing work, life, the universe, and everything. <laughs> so I think it is that trial and error. I think gear selection is probably, you know, and cadence is almost a neglected attribute of cycling. I think cycling, like any sport, can uh, you end up focusing on, I guess trends to a degree, or there's always sort of things which sort of grab the media's attention, the rider's attention. You know, we used to have heart rate, didn't we? And it was sort of lightness of bikes, aero bikes, power meters sort of finally there. But actually just the fundamentals really, like gear selection and cadence, you, you maybe don't really practice as much. So I think you're right, Simon, maybe just playing around with that just on a, a flat section of, of road, checking your, your power meter, seeing how the numbers might correlate is a good place to start. I mean, around actually increasing torque, again, it, it's the fundamentals, like overgear work is is a popular one, which I know many riders will probably already use. Big gear intervals, yeah, low cadence intervals. But I think with all these things, especially when you're um, sadly deeply the other side of 40 like myself, you know, <laughs> if, you, if you are pushing it, there's always the caveat that, you know, a, I, this shouldn't become a daily ritual really else you are going to end up sort of overtraining but um yeah i'd say you know the fundamentals of overgear work is certainly a very good way to improve torque you ever done any overgeared training stan you've got very big calves you look like you like a a, a, high, a high torque workout yeah well I, I think i i think my cadence is probably a bit too low i think often often i need to definitely work on my gear selection I end up kind of uh, stomping up hills and don't really spin my legs around that much I think uh, honestly like I, I, th I think cadence I think like you said James I think cadence is a really interesting one because I think as you say we all think you know, what's the fastest tire what's the fastest wheel you know and we're talking about minute differences but but personally I you know I, I realized a few years ago on the time trial bike that if I drop my cadence by five rpm from you know sort of low 90s to 85 or something i could because my heart rate comes down for the same effort i can produce around 10 more watts and you're never going to get 10 watts out of a wheel set <laughs> so so like you said stan there's there's something there's something in it well that that's what joss loden did with her our record right she kind of very consciously dropped her cadence a bit so she could keep her heart rate down for the whole thing yeah exactly and i think there's a, often you know and this this is maybe on on track equipment is that track riders always used to use kind of smaller gears spin very very fast and we've seen a move away from that towards kind of you know much bigger gear ratios kind of and maybe slightly lower cadence obviously there's still higher cadences than on the road just because of the fact that you've only got one gear and if you if you over gear yourself on the track <laughs> that's a recipe for disaster but 
it is something that's 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 changing and obviously we saw a lot of uh I don't know if there was any discussion about the kind of track equipment at the the conference, but we saw a lot of obviously big gears, aerodynamic kit, narrow bars, 3D printed parts, carbon drivetrain parts, for example, James. Was there anything on that at the conference? You know, my memory is is fading slightly, <laughs> Simon, so the, the, the detail is, um, is is vague. I mean, there's, I know that Kurt did mention about these titanium 3D parts, which I know Kurt is a good friend of Dan Bigham. And obviously you guys know Dan and obviously Joss and Dan is, um, well, he's the, you know, he is Mr. Aero, isn't he? To be fair. Yeah, that's I mean, right. I, I think he was sort of saying that, um, I interviewed him and Joss a few weeks ago and when he broke the hour record, I think he was saying his average power output was like 350 watts or the British hour record, obviously mm. not the work, which I think they said was about a hundred watts fewer than, um, Bradley Wiggins. Which I mean, it's almost like Dan Bigham hasn't got a frontal profile. <laughs> it's crazy. I think he did. Yeah, he did do it on a in a, in a slightly yeah, in a in a velodrome with slightly better conditions. And I think Wiggins unfortunately got. But um, but yeah, you're you're definitely right. And I think that kind of brings us on to uh, the second part of the article, which is you know your aero future. And this is something that really interests uh, me personally, James. And it's about kind of you know will uh, aerometers be the kind of next big thing in cycling. Now, obviously, power meters have kind of revolutionized the way everyone trains. But, you know, anyone who's interested in kind of riding fast knows that aerodynamics play a huge, huge role. So tools like the kind of Notio Connect and the, the Aero Lab and other things like that, they're kind of hovering around in the background, but they haven't quite hit the mainstream yet. But is this something that the kind of the people at the science and cycling conference think is really going to hit the big time in the next few years? Yeah, there seem to be, you know, the, the, the rumblings again. I, I mean, I've been to these conferences since I think the first one was back in 2014 now when it was um, up in Yorkshire. And it, you know, you have several topics like this where it does sim and it just seemed to, you know, maybe gone up a temp, you know, a centigrade or two, it's sort of risen, I would say this. Yeah. And the, you know, the chap called Kelly, uh, I think if, forgive me, Kelly, pronouncing your surname, was Zardich, who's co-founder of Aerolab Technology. Uh, obviously he was sort of, you know, thinking this is going to really hit the, the mainstream very, very soon. The price of the Aerolab is pro- prohibitive at the moment, but the, the use of them is becoming more prominent. Again, Dan Bigham, <laughs> some Dan Bigham fan show here, but uh, Dan had used, he's used the, the Aero Lab quite a bit. Kelly was saying he used it in the build-up to when he um, broke that record in Greenwich. And, and he he's basically, the, the, the idea behind it is that it's very, it's measuring all these different parameters. It, it I mean, if, if the listeners, it's, it's a vessel which sits beneath your aero bars. Um, it, it's sort of, yeah, like a little aerial. And it measures factors like uh, aerodynamic drag, wind speed, wind yaw, yaw angle, wind gusts, plus even estimations of drivetrain losses. It manages to do this, creates all this data, and then gives you your coefficient of drag frontal profile. I mean, it's, it's incredible stuff. And in all honesty, much of the data is beyond my slightly, um, you know, pre-Christmas fatigues mind. <laughs> but I, as it, it's at the moment, I would say currently 
they're really useful in the right hands. It, it, it's still a tool, possibly like power meters of late eight, uh, 80s, early 90s almost, that, yeah, if you know how to use them, you've got that sort of analytical mind uh, and you're almost turned on by data, then, yeah, you can really do a good job. And again, I know Dan's a big fan, but there's, I think there's still a lot of almost white noise around the data. So if you know what you can lose, um, that's great. But, I mean, it's it just makes sense, really, doesn't it? I mean, aerodynamic isn't a fad. I mean, it, it's, it's clearly there's benefits to be made. I mean, what is it? I, I know it's a, an off-quoted fact of, you know, you're roughly 80% of yeah, the drag right. yeah. in the bike. So obviously, it changes with speed and, and things like that, which, it, you know, if you can change some of these parameters which you can control, obviously, you can't actually control the sh- well, you can control the shape of the bike, but only to a certain degree. Yeah. But you can certainly change yourself. And I think that's the use at the moment tends to be looking for optimizing you know either positions and gear in training i i guess you think the ideal might be almost i'll go out of a ride with my mates and they'll be like oh my cda is you know point two three or point three point four but if i go crouch a little lower it lowers it and you're going faster but i think on the fly changes i don't how sustainable are they i guess isn't it it's aerodynamics it's, it's always balancing that sweet spot of good aerodynamics and sustainable power output but no i mean to answer your question yeah as i've tried to in a very long-winded way (laughs) yeah i think there's they make sense but it's just that they have got a new one they call the aero lab light i think coming out and it's moved to that price which would be under 400 dollars yeah obviously the problem with anything where you're trying to hit the mass market is how much you sacrifice an accuracy of of data but um i think like you say we you know i think you made a good comparison so we had the sort of same thing with power meters for a long time in the sense that you know power meters were commercially available from the kind of you know the very late 80s obviously with srm and you know greg lemond using them but they didn't really kind of catch on commercially until they were offered at a much lower price point i think you know i remember when stages started offering their kind of left hand crank arm only option that's when they really started becoming popular but like you said you you know in order to hit that price point they had to sacrifice you know in my opinion too much accuracy but for a lot of people it kind of opened the door to experimenting with something that you know maybe they didn't realize would be useful right because you know why do i need a a a box to tell me how hard i'm pushing the pedals like i you know i just push them as hard as i can and that's that you know but like as you say with all of these things there are intricacies and and i think you know obviously for someone who works in kind of product testing you know having a device that can measure aerodynamics is really interesting because i think you know brands go on about you know even if we're comparing just aero helmets you know it, it can be so individual so having a device that allows you to to actually measure the aerodynamic drag yeah not just kind of confer it from a you know power speed relationship or something it just helps consumers you know ultimately make better decisions whether when they're spending money but also as you say to like you know try out different positions you know if you're if anyone is into time trialing will know you, you know you, you have an you know infinite amount of kind of positional variations you could make in terms of arm angle head position saddle position you know how far forward or how far back do you want to be and so having a kind of device like this that would enable you to kind of make data-led decisions and not just kind of guess 
would be really interesting but like you said there's almost kind of too much data and i think you know look a bit like with power meters people don't necessarily yet know what to do with it so i wonder if there's a kind of educational uh you know an educational lesson to be done by the manufacturers of these things and trying to you know make it not to dumb it down but just to kind of simplify it and sort of say you know this is how you use it this is what it means etc i mean stan you i think you've dabbled in power meters before but would an aerodynamic kind of a device that tells you aerodynamics would that interest you yeah i I think possibly i mean i think the thing about power meters is they obviously give you a a direct feedback to how you're doing and you can track your fitness over time via looking at your power output um so I, I guess I guess these devices would be a lot more niche because I guess the appeal of going away and looking at data after your ride to fine tune your position is quite a is, is for quite a select group of people, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think, but it, you know, it's like I said, you know, I I would make the argument that if you have a power meter, like it's a training tool, right? So I know a lot of people just want to know what power they're producing, but like. I, I would say that if you, you know, if you're not into doing specific kind of training, I, I would say most people don't need a power meter. So I think it might be one of those things that people might just want to know, you know, as the kind of CDA and that sort of thing becomes kind of more commonplace in the kind of, you know, the lexicon of cycling. I think it might be one of those things that people go, well, I just want to know what my CDA is. And then once you know what it is and you can work on improving it. So I, I wonder if it will go that way. Yeah, I mean... M- so I mean it's it's like it's like you don't need to know your power output to enjoy riding a bike, right? But it, oh, I it, don't know about it that. Enriches <laughs> it enriches the experience and <laughs> knowing about your CDA will, you know, do the same. And I guess it it could be one of those devices which I mean ultimately, theoretically, it's it's a great idea in as much as it's taken it out into the real world. I mean, wind tunnels, obviously you're getting such precise data there that it's so controlled, isn't it? I mm. mean, you haven't got that uncontrolled atmosphere of the environment. So it, it could even be something which will be offered to the, you know, the top recreational riders who might go for a wind tunnel fit or a top end bike fit and say, okay, we'll be using the the local velodrome and we'll put you through to the sensors. I don't know if I know a chap, who's Xavier? Javier yeah. Disley. Javier Disley. Yeah. Uh, I know Javier's again sort of a bit of an aero god. And I know he uses, I don't know if it's the Aero Lab or No Shield or his own sort of devices, but I know he he will deal with at least pro teams and I suspect probably top recreational riders as well on and that sort of setup. Yeah, that's right. So for those who don't know, and we have had uh, Xavier on the podcast before, actually, he's a very, very good source. Um, he runs a company called AeroCoach in the UK. And, and as James says, they offer kind of performance cons- consultations around aerodynamics, rolling resistance, that sort of thing. But they use, you know, wind tunnel testing, track testing, field testing, that that sort of thing. And, and I think that's a really good point, James, that, um, you know, things in a wind tunnel are very precise and repeatable, but they're also very clean and the real world isn't very clean. <laughs> and I don't just mean in terms of, you know, getting your bike dirty, but just in terms of the airflow out in the real world is just not as it is in a wind tunnel. So, you know, I think we've all heard stories of a pro rider going into the wind tunnel, getting a brand new position and just finding out that like either, you know, the one, they just can't hold it in the real world. They can't see where they're going or two, it just doesn't quite work. And, and, you know, various pieces of kit have that as well. And I think, you know, like the POC Tempor is a, quite a good example of that in the sense that like it, it it's focused 
its development around one very specific position, which is a kind of, you know, very low head position. But if you're not holding that position, it might be quite slow. So that's a kind of helmet du jour at the moment in the time trial scene. We see a lot of people wearing it because, you know, Dan Bigham and his Hugh Hugh Watt bike team made it very famous by winning lots of races on the track. But um, obviously Dan knows how to make it work, but it's not so clear if everyone else does. So, (laughs) yeah, it's a tricky one. It's like you say, I think that education and I think that's a hurdle, you know, not only for, you know, someone like AeroLab and these Aero sensors another company who uh sort of have hit the headlines a lot in this year has been like super sapiens hasn't it and mm. their glucose monitoring and I've, I've tried that out and um you know you're getting some really interesting data but again you know personally i'm i'm not uber qualified to take that data and say well you know well, what am i doing here shall i not have a cheese sandwich for breakfast or <laughs> you know shall I yeah Pringles away right. today, yeah. Sort of yeah. Thing. so it's it's education and that's that's the hurdle, isn't it, in, in many yeah. of these innovations. I'm sure if anyone starts using it in races and they win anything, the UCI will ban them anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> Outrageous. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, um, having said all of that, our next topic is that it's apparently not all about the bike. And what we mean by that is kind of, you know, it's, it, it's about kind of the athlete, isn't it? And, and monitoring their kind of, you know, away from you know, data like power output, aerodynamic drag in a position or kind of, um, you know, heart rate or something like that. It's maybe monitoring things like uh, rate of perceived exertion, stress, heart rate variability is a kind of, you know, a popular one right now. But I think heart rate variability is, you know, it's a kind of, it's a way of getting some data for stress, isn't it, essentially. So, you know, where where are things going with that? And, And why is that a kind of key in, you know, performance. Well, it's, it's a presentation by, yes, the wonderfully named Ruby, Ruby Otto, who's a lecturer in physiology at the University of Groningen. Now, it you know, it was almost appreciate. it was an appreciated sort of, um, not interlude, but so many of the conference um, seminars are, you know, data-led, training tool-led, physical training-led. And actually, ultimately, you, you've got to, it's got to be the mind, isn't it? And the character and the personality, that's all in harmony. Because if you're not, if you're not feeling great, you know, you're not going to be sort of reaching your peak performance. So really Ruby's presentation was really just looking at stress on athlete performance. And it was, I think it was almost reassuring actually, which I'm sounding contradictory on a, 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 a sort of a podcast about the science of cycling, but she uses this, you know, the rate of perceived exertion scale a lot and the Borg scale, which for listeners who haven't heard of it, and I'm sure many of you have, is it's really a scale which I think the official Borg scale, you two chaps might know more of it, is six to 20. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Really from very, very light six to balls out at 20. <laughs> yeah, really intense, yeah. which obviously sounds quite a parochial measure, but there's been so many studies on the Borg scale of like, you know, matching they'll try and match it with heart rate and that and they realize well yeah that ultimately that is the, the biggest measure really of how you're psychologically and physically feeling so she was really just sort of she was looking at stress and recovery or studies into everyday stress general recovery sports specific stress and sports specific recovery 
And through all this, she created a uh, recovery stress score. So a lot of her research is based on questionnaires dealing with, it's not just cyclists, it tends to be endurance athletes across the board, so triathletes and runners. And it, I mean, it, it sounds obvious to a degree, but again, you sort of sometimes you need to be mm. reminded of, of the obvious that athletes were really underperforming and verging on overtraining when they had a real negative stress balance and actually as we all know we can all get a bit irritated with training and have a bad session or a bad sport and experience that's usually in- incomparable to a bad personal experience probably away from the bike really isn't it and i think that's what she found just if um the rider had, had a bad experience i mean she did manage i'm not i'm not sure how she managed this ruby but she did one of the studies she did she followed a group of runners who'd endured a negative life event. Now she couldn't say because of ethics what the negative life event was. And I guess, I don't know how you pitched that on Twitter. I guess, have you recently gone through a yeah. trauma? <laughs> if so, <laughs> please contact me. But yeah, she she realised um, that the running group's performance actually dropped by an average of around six, uh, 3.6% at the time. And again, factors like oxygen consumption, heart rate, they all went up. So it was really, Ruby was just hammering home for the the riders the importance of knowing yourself how you feel and if you're feeling pretty bad is that the best time to start doing a high talk session <laughs> for example <laughs> you know it's like okay maybe it, you just ease off for a couple of days and again so i'm like you said this will tie in with hrv training which obviously is sort of more empirical side of things and it, yeah it was just i guess your your own mot really but she was, yeah, she, it was, a, it was a very interesting sort of seminar and just, it gave you a step back really of like, yeah, I guess you've got to be in mint condition mentally to physically perform. Yeah. And, and I, and I think it makes a lot of sense. And, and I, I, and I think this is another area that is very much kind of, as you, as, as you kind of say, probably underappreciated to a degree because we have all of these tools in cycling that makes it so easy to log know data for days but actually just to kind of looking in the mirror or just looking inside yourself and taking a kind of little check of like how how do I feel like am I happy do I feel exhausted you know how did that session go and and like you say if you're if you just track that and you can start to build up a kind of picture of you know if you every day if every single day after your training session you know you you put out of five how happy were you and and it's like you know two out of five then then that's an indication that's you know maybe something's not going the right way and and you might need to do something about it and, and as and as you say like it the athlete there's a good quote um if an athlete's happy with their training in life they see a performance increase and so that that's a kind of very definitive thing and i know it's it's very easy for us to i'm sure people are listening to this thinking like well you know i've got a very busy life my job is stressful, you know, I can't just reduce my stress, but, but maybe that's a case that if you, if, if you are listening to that and that describes you, then it's probably not best to be pushing yourself to the absolute limit on the bike because it's not going to be productive. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And that, that follows, I was up with Phil Burt of the Manchester Institute of Health and Performance a few weeks back. And Phil was talking about stress and managing stress and especially for recreational riders. And I mean, it's, I guess it's a bit more sports specific, but you know, he was saying like, it is all about knowing yourself. And if you know, your, you know, once the echoes of old Lang Zyna died down and you're going to start following say a six month training plan, 
and the fourth weekend you've got a real big key session you know that is you pushing the envelope a little bit so maybe penciling a massage that week you know and it is that you know it is (laughs) yeah yeah. and it's like well yeah that that sort of makes sense and i think also there's an element i don't know about you guys but i uh, you know i can tell most when i'm feeling a bit rough because you just feel it in your your quads you're like oh that that's lift that's lifted over to the second day really of really giving me a bit of trauma again it might be an age-related issue no, I know, I think I know exactly what you mean, and I think in, I think unfortunately cycling is one of those sports that has had a kind of bad relationship with suffering in a sort of sense that you know it's supposed to hurt, it's supposed you're supposed to be tired, and we always worry about like oh you know we don't all not all of us maybe just the kind of insane people like me who like to train and race like it, it, you're always thinking well I need to do this extra session because you know you know you know we had to watch those silly lance armstrong documentaries where i was out on my bike six hours a day you know busting my ass that sort of thing and it's kind of this sort of toxic masculinity thing where actually like if you're tired then adding to your stress load isn't productive you're not getting fitter you know you're only getting fitter when you recover and and so as you kind of said like if you're feeling too tired to do that training session like you should just take a rest and then you can come back stronger hopefully in a couple of days time do that session do a quality session and not kind of you know make yourself ill or just lose so much motivation that you go i'm just going to bin this training plan i can't be bothered with it um (laughs) yeah i don't know i I think i think we've all been there i don't know about you stan have you have you ever kind of followed a training plan and fallen out of love with the sport (laughs) um i've never really followed a specific training plan but i've definitely uh ridden myself into the ground a bit and ridden too much and I don't know I like I've never I've never really kind of looked at how it's impacted my performance specifically but definitely lose lose the will to cycle through pushing myself too hard or feeling like I have to keep up and be able to perform at a certain level I guess Um, yeah and and this I mean like we you know we're doing this for for fun aren't we <laughs> yeah and, and it's it's funny when you wonder why you're doing something you're supposedly doing for fun right <laughs> but um yeah if james if people want you know an empirical idea of how their stress levels are impacting their cycling what can they do the i guess the, the hrv training it is a, is a good one to turn to there's i mean i i've only actually used hrv a few times i've done about you chaps i've used the omega wave is one i think it's a finnish company and there's an hrv app sorry just to jump in just to just just in case the listeners don't know hrv is heart rate variability and it basically measures the gap between each heartbeat and based on that your heart the gaps between should be kind of irregular is that right if you're not stressed and then if the, the more stressed you are the kind of like the more regular the heart there's something like obviously you know don't take my word for it because I'm kind of doing this off the top of my head. But if you're interested in, as Stan says, a kind of empirical measure of your current stress levels, you know, beyond just kind of saying, I feel knackered, heart rate variability might be a good one. But yeah, sorry, James, HRV, heart rate variability. Yeah, and it, I mean, no, you're right. So I mean, it's, it's like it's like any anything really, isn't it? It's the, the more you might use one of these apps. I mean, they are on the phone. I think yeah, I, I don't know the um, accuracy of the, I think it's literally as soon as you wake up, you put your finger on your phone and it will give you a, a reading. The more data, you know, the more days you do it, obviously the more 
accurate a picture you build up of, you know, how stressed or not you are. And I guess the ideal is if you're that way inclined as a rider where you are that, you know, militant, it's, it can, you know, beyond saying you ease off a little bit, it, it can really dictate your riding that that day a bit more precisely. If you weren't going to have an interval, but you're feeling great, you might say, well, actually, I can squeeze in maybe an interval. But yeah, I think, I think H, HRV training for the listeners is a pretty good place to start. Yeah, uh, so I think if listeners are interested in exploring that a bit more, then they may have heard of kind of commercial options that offer a thing a bit like a bit like Whoop, the Whoop band, for example, which is used by you know a few of the pro teams. I think you can get the Aura Ring as well. I know that you know many smartwatches which have um, heart rate monitors. They probably offer some kind of heart rate variability monitoring as well. Like you know, sleep has always been a big thing for me. You know, I. I I'm, I'm a very, very sensitive to a lack of sleep. So I, I'm always like kind of looking for a, you know, a marginal gain in terms of a better pillow or a, <laughs> a better duvet or, you know, a room away from my, my baby. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so all, all of those things in terms of stress and recovery, like, you know, a, a smartwatch or as James said, you know, a, fr- a free app on your phone. And I think, like you said, James, using the kind of data in a kind of longitudinal sense and building up a kind of picture of of what your kind of baseline not stressed is then so when you deviate from that you can say oh today is is or isn't a good day to do a really hard training session and you know that that can hopefully help you be a more productive trainer so talking about being a kind of more productive trainer i think the next thing on your uh, article james was talking about riding to your strengths and kind of more importantly how to kind of more accurately determine your strengths. So what were, you know, what's the kind of vanguard of determining rider strengths? Well, historically, I don't, I mean, again, for the the keener riders out there who have been through the labs, been through the university labs, and if they've been brave enough, (laughs) which I wouldn't be, (laughs) it would be a muscle biopsy, which is as it suggests that you have a, you know, muscle fiber, fibers removed from your, I think it's your thigh. I'm not sure exactly which of the muscles. I don't know if either of you. No, I've not had that. Done. No, <laughs> I, haven't done that. I don't think anyone's interested in knowing what. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, but actually, interestingly, because uh, I was up at Nipple John Moore University a few months back with, uh, I'm sure you know, James Morton up there and sort of, and uh, they've got a muscle biopsy lab there which sounds obviously a bit sadistic but he did say sort of the um a lot of the studies that are out there it is university students who are the sacrificial lambs i mean it's and and that i think that's why a lot of the journals that are out there you'll get the world tour support staff would you know be like well that's great for top age groupers recreational writers but an elite is a completely different thing they're so efficient already that might not apply to this and that but yeah he was just saying that the elites just they're impossible to get you know yeah you're not going to get a leg muscle biopsy from an elite (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't know why sagan and co (laughs) don't want to lose half their muscle through the season but yeah that (laughs) that's that is the sort of the gold standard where you can obviously analyze to a very deep level now at the conference 
a lecturer called Aline or Aline Livan, who's a, well, a postdoctoral researcher in exercise physiology and sports nutrition at Ghent University. Now, she presented on a new technique devised by her professor, which is a non invasive mm-hmm. technique to measure muscle typology. So we're, I guess we're broadly talking, you know, slow twitch and, and fast twitch. Mm-hmm. And the professor, I think it was Professor Vim Derev, again, apologies, but <laughs> really it was a scanner that measured carnosine levels in the muscle. Now, carnosine is a protein building block, and crudely, they've just found carnosine levels to be more readily available in fast twitch fibres. And they've obviously um, tested this and tested it and compared it with the gold standard in the muscle biopsies and have come up with results they feel uh, you know strong enough for this to be a sort of commercial offering. So it's really saying high carnosine less, uh, levels, sorry, uh, I mean a high propensity of fast twitch, low carnosine levels, a slow twitch. And again, which I guess makes it potentially then useful for, for example, elite riders. Yeah, and I think most people will have probably heard of kind of fast twitch muscle fibres versus slow twitch muscle fibres. Obviously, we would typically associate fast twitch muscle fibres with sprinters and then slower ones with endurance athletes. And it's important to remember that, you know, a sprinter like Mark Cavendish, for example, is actually an endurance athlete because, you know, obviously the Tour de France is a very long event for a sprint. So, but I think obviously, as you say, it's, you know, it's useful for elite athletes in determining maybe, you know, where, where they might want to focus their strengths, but, you know, perhaps for everyone else, if this, if this technology ever makes its way down to kind of mortals like us, it, you know, perhaps it will be useful. Your article says in, um, kind of guiding how you might train, you know, in the sense that if you've got a different kind of makeup of muscle typologies, then maybe that means you might need longer between training sessions and maybe even different training sessions to someone else with a different muscle typology. And so again, it's not just about prescribing, you know, you've got to go out and do six hours of zone two every day and then maybe that would really work for some people but for other people it might not work and so maybe this is a way of re- reducing that kind of trial and error yeah absolutely and i think as elaine said that you know another example is like pacing so if you've got a, a slow typology you might be best suited to even pacing while fast fast typology you know you might start off slow and finish fast so i think there's multi you know multitude of potential uses again the caveat with all of these things is you know i guess time will be the best sort of you know teller of how useful or not i know i've sort of used like dna fit in the past where you take a swab and they've identified certain you know genes which there might be links with, you know, various, again, facets of uh, performance, like high anaerobic threshold or VO2 max. Again, the, you know, I, I found the problem with something like, say, the gene, you know, looking at your genes is it's still very early days, certainly mm-hmm. in the, the commercial sports world. So it's like, yeah, that might have a link with that facet of the f- performance, but so might a few other things and how is it interconnected and interlinked. So it's, yeah, again, I, I, you know, I think time will, will tell, but it's, um, and also there's, there is the element of to a degree, we, I guess we, we sort of know ourselves, you know, if we're suited to sprinting or endurance and like you said, I mean, especially when it comes to, yeah, even the top sprinters, it's an endurance event isn't it at the the top level and i think a lot of these sprinters actually they're 
they're almost having they're training their endurance almost more than the, the sprinting side of things because they have actually got this natural propensity a higher ratio of fast twitch fibers they need to really work on the slow twitch fibers to get over that damn mountain so um but i can certainly see you know that uses there of you know down the line again once it's sort of honed yeah i think i think for me that's the kind of most interesting thing is kind of guiding how you train because i think you know as someone who has tried to train you're always wondering like is this really the best thing i could be doing you know especially if you've got limited time you know obviously if you've got you know the time to train like a professional then you can just go out ride all day and and you know you can do that you can use that volume but when you're only training you know maybe six or seven hours a week maximum you want to know that you're kind of optimizing those hours and it can be really difficult you know you can see someone else who's maybe quite fast and you think well i should maybe i should be doing what they're doing but if you know if it's not going to work for you you might have to find out through trial and error at the moment, right? And I've realized recently, for example, that, you know, if I do too much intensity, I crash and burn. And and so if I watch what everyone else is doing, you know, other people, if, you know, for example, do a lot of Zwift racing, they might do, you know, two or three Zwift races a week or something. Oh, it's great for the high intensity. But if I did that, I would be on my, I'd be on my knees <laughs> in a matter of weeks. So, uh, you know, I've kind of had to learn that through trial and error, but it's it taken a number of years. So I think it would be really interesting to be able to go have a scan and for them to come back and say, you know, it's, you know, according to this data, it seems like you should be trying to train like this. Yeah. And I think it's, it, it, again, it makes you think, I guess, of, you know, that, that terrible phrase sometimes of training smart, but yeah we're all guilty of not doing that and again yeah. i think when you're short of time there is that sort of natural feeling you might maybe not beast yourself but you want to get a bit of a sweat and you want to feel like you've done a workout you and i know at the the conference there was this chap Stephen siler i think i don't know if you've heard of him, but he he was a key driver of this 80 20 training or the polarized training where he analyzed loads of studies over the years of elite endurance athletes training programs and he said just naturally it came out as a split of this 80 percent of real low intensity and 20 percent of high intensity and when he's talking low and high he's talking low and high and i think the problem us recreational riders have is probably hitting that middling all the time where you're probably not maximizing the aerobic adaptation or the anaerobic adaptation you might just be fatiguing a little bit so i think the idea of the typology and knowing a bit more about yourself and trying to change that mindset of i need a good sweat on each time it you know it won't do any harm will it because like you said i mean zwift's been great but obviously you know there is that you know competitive element which is obviously a good thing but do you want the competitive element every day i mean that can be a fast track to overtraining for some people anyway yeah definitely okay so let's move on to the last uh, but by no means least point in the article and it's this is to do with kind of bike fit and the evolving nature of how professionals are fitting people and the kind of implications that's having you know at the kind of the top level of the sport obviously but also you know what it might mean for the rest of us now I think the notes I've got written down here are kind of uh, moving towards a more dynamic bike fit rather than a static bike fit and that apparent you know this kind of increase and improvement in bike fit has you know led to decreases in knee injuries and various things like that is that right yeah well it was it was an interesting seminar chat called victor scholler who had a phd in sports science and he's working at the moment with 
the uh, French World Tour team, Group Armour F- FDJ. Apologies if they're not F- Group Armour FDJ for 2022. I know how quickly the sponsorships <laughs> or the <laughs> changes. But yeah, he was just, and again, I guess to a degree, it's it's as you would expect that these dynamic bike fits like Retool, you know, they're, they're getting enough data now that actually they are, they are worth doing over a static fit because a lot of the time you think, well, yeah, that, that makes sense, but I don't think there's too many, you know, not enough studies. And I think they're, they're building that up. And he was saying that through the, the research he'd done, uh, knee injuries in the professional ranks, he'd suggested a down from 28%. Again, forgive my uh, ignorance. I don't know 28% whether that was one season, but let's say 28% to 6% of which he attributed it a lot of it to the improvements in, in bike fitting. So it was really just saying, yeah, get a professional bike fit will improve your um, your chances of improving your performance and preventing injury, which obviously is what we really want. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, an interesting point that this kind of section made is that a dynamic bike fit takes into account factors like leg length differences, uh, hip rocking, you know, whether you pedal with your toes down or your heels down, you know, that those kind of things that just can't be captured by a static bike fit. So, um, you know, and it also, it you know, includes kind of recommendations for, you know, setting your saddle height to around 106 to around uh, in between 106 and 109% of this figure. And I think, you know, what's quite nice about that formula is obviously one that it's you know quite simple to measure your inseam and, and go away and do that but also that it gives a kind of range and it's not just you know a discrete figure because I think a lot of people get very worked up about you know I must get my saddle height exactly right but obviously you know we wake up after a, maybe a, a bit stiff after a workout and maybe our optimum saddle height has come down half a centimeter but then maybe if you're feeling really really flexible on a good day maybe your optimum saddle height it might go up and so it's kind of nice to acknowledge that it, it's not just you know humans are not robots and that maybe maybe there isn't just discrete figures for everything yeah absolutely and you're right and i think it's i guess tied in with the um the aero lab stuff as well all of this feels like it's almost that customization it's all about you and trying to take it out in in replicating the real world as much as you can again like i said earlier i was up with phil burt the other day and he um the, the bike fitter who used to be at Team Sky, if your listeners aren't aware, he uh, he's he's great. He, he clearly knows his stuff. I did. I had a bike fit with Phil, and um, I'd always thought like my hamstrings were. I played a lot of football and still do like five a side, and you know I always thought they were like brittle and like my flexibility is um yes appallingly bad, unfortunately. But I always thought it was my hamstrings, and after a few tests, he was like, "You saying I know your hamstrings are great?" I was like. Yeah. Uh, why am I not flexible there? He said, you've got the, the worst hips he's ever seen, which unfortunately probably explains my dancing as well. <laughs> but, you know, it's good because he gave us stuff to go away with, even, you know, like a trigger point therapy ball, just try and ease things after a ride. So I think it's good for the bike fitting, but it's other stuff you can take away as well. Again, I'm not sponsored by Phil or the bike fitting community, but it just makes sense. And I think we can all, if we've got the money, spend a lot of money on, gear which you know i'm sure most bits of gear do help you know imp- improve your performance to a degree but it's the level you want to improve isn't it and i think bike fit you know for the money is one of the best spends you can you can do really have you had a bike fit stan i haven't had a bike fit but um 
one question I had was sometimes you hear that, you know, pros had a bike fit once and then they haven't, they haven't had one again, or people go for a bike fit and then they get their position and then they're kind of sorted. Is a bike fits, do you do them once and then you just find your position, you keep riding, or is it something that you should check back in with and return to in a couple of years or the following year? Yeah, it's definitely something you need to return to. I I think, like, regarding the pros or the the World Tour riders, I think what they would tend to do, certainly the new riders, for example, there's probably, you know, there's training camps going on at the moment, usually like Calpe or Calp, as you say, seems to be the hotbed. But that would be a big session for bike fit. And I know new riders would certainly have their bike fit assessed. And I think they would then reassess sort of maybe the late January camp. Now, I don't, you know, and I think then that would be it set for the season to a degree. Obviously, there'll be individual sort of changes. Now, that's obviously the pro ranks. I don't think prescribing a sort of one month visit to your bike fit. I mean, it might be good for the likes of Phil Burr, but, you know, that that would be a bit too much. But I would say, you know, if you could afford it once a season, because I guess the the ultimate idea is you're you're looking to improve your bike fit, to improve your performance, improve your fitness, tied in with that might be flexibility as well and actually you probably change yourself on a bike then which might mean you've got to subtly change it again perhaps even to a more aggressive position if you can hold it for example yeah that that's yeah i think that's a really interesting point and i think certainly um you know people who take part in time trials are probably more on that end of the scale where they realize that you know there you know bike fit I think is typically associated well i just need to be comfortable you know it's about finding the right saddle and then i'm set on that and I'm good to go. But as we kind of discussed earlier in this podcast, you know, because we now know that aerodynamics play such a big factor, actually, like, obviously, you need, you want to be comfortable, but you also want to be in a fast position, whether that be on a road or a time trial bike, because it's going to affect your performance to an enormous magnitude, um, you know, obviously, you know, depending on kind of where your races are. So I, I think definitely, as, as, you, as you said, James, it, it it's about thinking about this you know, perhaps in the long term and say, well, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to, you shouldn't just slam your stem and buy a you know, negative 17 degree stem and, you know, make sure you can have your saddle at the absolute highest you can reach the pedals from. But at the same time, if you're going for a bolt upright position, you know, that might be, that might be very comfortable, but it's not going to be very fast. So if you can kind of get a bike fit, as you said, you know, from, from someone like Philbert or, you know, whatever bike fitter you go to get some recommendations on things that you might be able to do to maybe improve your bike fit, improve how you can hold an aerodynamic position. It's going to make you much faster than buying a new bike. Yeah, absolutely. And I think with all these things and it, it, it actually came out of the conference, which to a degree I was surprised that they were, they were saying all these studies and all this, this is all great, but it, it's just, it's adding to the picture you know, it's not the whole picture. And again, even with you have a bike fit, obviously you want to leave that thing. This is perfect, but you've also got to see how you feel as well. You know, and I think the top bike fitters will always say that. They'll say, right, don't you ever move or deviate from that position again? You know, so I think it's it's just, yeah, have it as professional as you can, like, you know, you feel you're in the hands of an expert, but then you're the one who goes out riding, you know, on a long Sunday, you know, cold morning in winter. And if it feels uncomfortable, then speak to the bike fitter and you might say, well, tweak it or just give it another couple of weeks. Absolutely. Right. Well, I think we've probably had James for long enough now. So um, we've reached the end of the article. As to say, if you haven't read the article, it is available, obviously, still on bikeradar.com. 
It's called Five Frontiers of Cycling Science That Could Make You Faster in 2022. It's a really good read. So if you haven't had a look, do have a look. And obviously, if you have any questions, we will you know, obviously post this podcast on bikeradar.com. If you leave them there for us, then you know, one of us will try and get them over to James. We'll try and get you an answer to that as well. Um, so yeah, that all, all it leads me to do is say thank you very much to James and Stan for joining me today. No, thank yeah, you, Simon. So nice to meet you, Stan. And uh, and thanks to you, our listeners, for listening. Of course, if you did like this podcast, please leave us a review and a rating wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe for more content like this, and we'll see you again. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. <laughs>